want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. I remember landing back in guitar and my phone just like blew up when I turned it back on. And my mom and my friends were like, hey, are you okay? Like what's going on? And because all they knew was like there had been service members that had died at HKIA. And no matter if it was Air Force, Marine, Army, et cetera, we're all a team. And so no matter who it is, like you don't want it to have any U.S. service member name on there. And when the names came out that it was her and a couple others, like we were all like, we're going to keep going. Because I think that was like the intent of the individuals that did all this was like, we want to keep them from coming back and taking these people out or whatever the intent was, was like, you think we're not going to come back? Okay, joke's on you because we don't get scared that easily. What's up and thanks for listening in or watching if you're on YouTube or Spotify because they have videos now. But my guest today is Grace Tinkey. She has quite the interesting career. She started off at the Air Force Academy for a short bit. She ended up as a C-17 loadmaster. We talk a lot today about her time in Afghanistan during the evacuation of 2021, what she experienced, what she thought, and just some of the things that she went through. She now is waiting to go to pilot training. She commissioned, so she's gone from the listed side of the house, the officer side of the house. We talk about that as well, and just a little bit more about her background, which I think you'll enjoy. You can join me, AP, and Voodoo on August 31st over on the Afrin Podcast YouTube channel at 1800 or 6 p.m. Eastern for a live Q&A and discussion if you have any questions, feel free to shoot those my way. You can go over to the contact section of the Afterburn Podcast website. I have links down to that below, as well as a newsletter. A reminder, if you've signed up for the newsletter, because that's something new we're doing, that make sure you verify that you actually signed up. So you'll get an email once you sign up saying, yep, it's me, and I opted in to this newsletter. So there are a few of you out there who haven't done that, so make sure you do that if you sign up for the newsletter. And if you haven't yet, you can find that down in the description below and share it with your friends. With that being said, let's get into the podcast with Grace. Grace, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm glad uh, we were able to connect and happy to have you on here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's good well, to meet a fellow Georgian. Yeah, I know. It's kind of funny growing up uh, basically right next door to each other, more or less. And then Absolutely. while this is a remote recording, uh, we're probably <laughs> separated by maybe an hour maybe uh, an right hour. now. But yeah. you got big things going on. I mean, you're heading off to Europe tomorrow, so... I, I do appreciate you taking the time to to join me, and then absolutely, I know you're going to be doing a lot of work the next week. Should be fun. Yeah, it'll be good. Uh, so, hey, I want to I want to jump kind of right into it. This this ties into the theme of been the month of what I've been releasing on the podcast, and it's talking a lot about Afghanistan because we're now coming up on the two year anniversary. Yep. You are now getting ready to go to pilot training, which is kind of cool. We'll talk about that in a minute. But two years ago, you were not in pilot training or getting ready to go to pilot training. You're a loadmaster, correct? Correct. Yep. Can you kind of talk to me about just big picture? Where were you? Where were you assigned? What were you doing leading up to the August 2021 drawdown in Afghanistan? Where were you? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2020, I was a senior airman out of Joint Base Charleston. Um, I was in the 15th Airlift Squadron, the best one, the Eagles. Um, <laughs> we have a competition with the Pelicans and Lions all the time, but... Uh, essentially, what we were doing was we were prepping for my first deployment and a couple of the other airmen, our squadron first deployment. So, and very beginning of August, on August 1st, we deployed from Charleston to Qatar in IED. Um, I remember getting there, you have your typical like, pre-deployment nerves just because none of us had ever been deployed. Um, although Qatar is not as bad as most bases could be. Um, it was our first time away from home other than just TDYs we had done for being loadmasters, but we got there. I remember we had our all call essentially. We're like, hey, this is what's going to be expected the next couple months of you being here. 
Um, there's this thing called NEO we might be doing in Afghanistan, but it'll probably be more towards December, so it probably won't be your crew while you're here. And so that was uh, something we had heard, but not something we really expected to do, although you're always expected to be ready for no matter what it is. Um, literally two days, not two days later, it was more like two weeks later on the 15th, uh, we were supposed to go to Africa for a mission. And I remember stepping to our brief and we were going to be one of the first jets in Kabul bringing the uh, Mountain Home Division. That was the crew before uh, the 82nd came in. And so we were sitting there and they're like, you guys, you guys ready for this? And um, it was one of those things where like, I don't think anyone knew what was going to happen. Um, even the intel guy was like low threat right now. Like we're going to go in, get these guys on the ground, secure the perimeter and kind of go from there. And we're kind of laughing. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably uh, did. Well, people didn't see that going the way it went, especially there on the the 16th. Sorry, real quick. In that two weeks leading up to it, were you doing any, were you doing like local missions? Were you going Africa, Europe, just kind of bouncing around or what what was? Oh, yeah, we were mainly doing like Kuwait and Iraq runs, um, a couple Africa runs. But typically our like standard mission was like Kuwait, Iraq, et cetera, just kind of doing that standard circle. So we hadn't done anything related to Afghanistan yet, just had heard about it. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Okay, interesting. So the 15th, you're planning on going on a mission to Africa and you walk in. And the plans change. Can you kind of talk to me through the that? The plans change. Yeah, so we went into the brief. Um, obviously, nerves got pretty high at that point because we're like, okay, like we're we're actually going to go do this. Um, we had no idea what to expect, which, the, which was the hardest thing, I think, because the unknown is something you never know. Um, we stepped out to the jet, and we had our entire cargo floor full of these Army guys and their battle rattle ready to go. And I remember looking, and, I mean, there was no room. They were like back to back to back to back, just sitting on the floor. Um, the commander was one of the most like high speed guys I have ever met. He was like, you just get us on the ground. Like, I don't care how you do it. Just get us there. And so kind of like the other pilots you talked to, um, essentially we were flying out there. There were a few jets that had gone in front of us that had turned around because the field was hot. Um, and our aircraft commander, Captain Darren Gelson, so much respect for that guy. Um, his first deployment as an AC we were flying in. He's like, how, how do you guys feel? Like, do you want to keep going? Do you want to press? And we're like, no, like we have to get these guys on the ground. So we're going to go until we can't go any further, essentially. And so closer we got, we had heard, okay, like the field is good. Like you can land, land at your own risk. That was kind of the standard phrase. I think everyone heard was land at your own risk. Um, as we landed, uh, we had taxied over to three other jets that were on the ground. And it was the most like eerie time I have ever had because you're just waiting you're like okay this seems chill like nothing's going on like everything's okay we got the guys off um me and my partner Yoko walked across to go see like how they were floor loading people on the other jets because it's something like we had never done there's like a paragraph in the pubs of like how to floor load people you're like okay you just get cargo straps across the cargo bay and that's it um, definitely not the best way to transport people, but in situations like this, you do everything you can to get as many people on that jet because the, I mean, the mission is essentially get as many people out. So this, you do whatever you can. Like, has the chaos happened on the field yet, or is this? No. So this is right okay. before all that happened. Like, it was very calm when the first jets landed. Like, it was one of those things where nothing was going on. Um, and that was the scary part because you're like, okay, like something is wrong. If nothing's going on, like something is wrong. Um, so essentially we went back to the jet and we just waited and then they started bringing out like busloads of people. This was before they started like walking people out cause they thought this was more effective. Um, so how they would do is they had like white wristbands on and that was showing that they were vetted for us to know that they were safe to be on our plane. And so we started bringing people up and bringing people up. And then in between the two busloads, there were two individuals that had run across the airfield and like demanded to get on the jet and like ran on in front of us. And that was when, I think, not the beginning of the end, but that's when chaos essentially started. Um, at that point, we had noticed they didn't have white wristbands. And for us, like, we're always willing to help people. But caveat to all of this is you don't know who some of these people are. And that's the thing, like, a lot of people do not like us. And you have to be very careful of, okay, are these people on our job for the right reason? And so we had to get them to the edge of our ramp. Uh, we had security forces, like, look through their bag, and they had them escorted away. Um, definitely not how we wanted to start that, but you have to be careful of always protecting your crew and then the people on board that are supposed to be there. Um, so that was the very start. 
as we finished uploading, we were closing up and we were strapping down bags and we started hearing gunfire outside. And I remember Yoakum looking at me and I'm like, all right, it's time to go. Um, we got on comms with Captain Gelson and we're like, hey, sir, like, we're hearing this in the back. And he was like, yeah, no, I can see it on the runway. Um, and the JTAC on the ground was essentially told us that one of the gates had broken and people were like running through and was like, okay, y'all need to leave right now because we're going to have to like essentially do a ramp freeze because, I mean, we don't want you guys taxiing or taking off all these jets because this is before like anyone knew like how to really do any of this. Yeah. Um, so we were lucky enough that we were able to take off with that first set of people. Um, that was also when the other jet with Captain or Colonel Cut, sorry, they were being overran as well. Um, so that's was not fun for us because you could hear it on comms like, hey, like this crew needs help. But there's also like you have to get your crew and these people out as well and hope that they can get their crew too. And that's something that no like team member ever wants to deal with. It's like you want to be on the ground, you want to help them. But sometimes like there's not much you can do in that situation. And so the moment we heard them on comms taking off as well, like we could definitely breathe a sigh of relief. Like, OK, like we're all off the ground. But that was the same night that one of another crew had their crew entry door opened on the taxiway and they had to pull a gun on someone. It's just like a very chaotic night to where when we all got back to Musops that night, like it was everyone was just like, I don't know how this is going to go. But you do the best with what the hand is given to you and you keep going. But um, we landed back in Qatar that night and that's where essentially like no one knew like how that process was going to go. So we literally landed and sat on the ground for an additional like seven, eight hours, just waiting for just to get processed with people. Um, but definitely not the best start to all this, but I think it made us realize, okay, like we're going to have to rise to the occasion every day because <laughs> this is not yeah. going to be fun, but it's not supposed to be fun. And we know what our mission is and we got to keep doing it. So um, literally the mission was to go in, get as many people out, get cargo out every day. Um, if you're tired, you know, sleep the best you can. But, like, this is a very critical time that you had to do the best you can with the career you had. So. Level up your listening with Bose Quiet Comfort Ultra Earbuds and Headphones with immersive sound and world-class noise cancellation for a not-so-silent night. Visit Bose.com slash Spotify to shop sound that's more than a present. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. CN the chaos. Like I cannot imagine it. We've talked about it on a couple different podcasts. We just had a bro chat that released today. You know, it's two other fighter pilots. And the thing that was really impressive is the fact that like everyone that to be expected rose to the occasion. Yeah. And there is nothing that was written down of like how you handle this, but everyone was a, a champion and like made it work. Like there's no rules. The rule book like, got thrown, not thrown out the window, but again, there's nothing telling you how to do X, Y, and Z. So Again, it's like hats off to all of you guys for making that happen. It's pretty impressive. Thank you. It's funny you mentioned Colonel Cut. I wonder, is that K-U-T? I believe it is. Does he, is he bald? Yes, he's bald. <laughs> yeah. I, okay, that's a throwback. We, uh, he was one of my T-6 pit instructors way back when. No I way. I go track him down. Um, super personable guy. Very intense. <laughs> but yes. if, it, if it hasn't changed, if I remember correctly. Um, Too much respect for what him and his crew did. Um, oh, yeah. They were over and made a very game time decision and um, a lot of respect for what he did because not an easy decision to make for sure. So yeah, I, I think AP said it best is we get paid for our judgment. You know, you're not yeah. always going to make the right call, but you got to make a call, and then that's the worst thing is to not make a decision. You just got to make it and hope it's uh, about eighty percent right or better, and life will be okay. How many people were loaded up on? So the first time this is that's the first time you floor loaded anyone. Correct. And you're with Sergeant Yoakum, trying to get him on the podcast as well. Yeah. Um, I again, I imagine that's not again that's not something that's happening probably very often, as you mentioned, like the first time you've ever done it. I'm trying to think of like it's probably only like Neo type scenarios where that's going to happen. How many people do you know, or do you think you had on your plane like that first round? Our first. 
time, I believe we had a little under 500. Um, <laughs> and it was one of those things where you're loading people all the way up to the steps to the cockpit. And so where I was sitting at the Lloyd Master Station, you have people right there. Um, and I'll remember like so many moments where I'm sitting there looking back, as you always do, just making sure everything's okay on takeoff. And you just see families crying. Um, for me, like I can't imagine leaving a country and knowing that the only thing you have is the backpack you brought with you and that it is so bad that you're willing to get on a plane that you have no idea where it's going. And I think that was like a, our main job as a loadmaster is to try to make this as comfortable as possible for them, although it was almost impossible to do so. Just from the pictures you've seen, like the bathrooms were disgusting, the floors were horrible. Um, but a lot of these people, it's the first time they ever flew on a plane. And yeah. so you have to have grace with them. We would try to find the best person that spoke English and put them on comms so they could be able to talk to them and be like, okay, like this is what's going on. This is why we haven't landed. This is why we're still circling. This is why we're not getting off the plane right now. And it might have been hard for a lot of people to understand, but we tried to communicate as best as we could with them just so they knew what was going on. Um, but a situation where, like, I can't imagine being in that position, but we're extremely lucky to live in a country that we do where we haven't had to worry about that yet. So, What were the next couple of weeks like? What was a day in the life of after kind of the initial chaos there on the 16th? Did it settle down at all or, like, stabilize? What was it I like? I think the best way to say it is it didn't get any easier. You just got not better at doing it, but each day was completely different. But we were hard crewed with the same group for majority of the time. And I will say that everyone was very thankful, I think, to be with the groups they were assigned because although we didn't even know each other prior to, you learn how to communicate very, very well. Um, there is never a thing of over-communicating. Like, literally one of us would be on headsets with the pilot the entire time telling them everything that was going on. Uh, we learned, like, how to do better as it went on. Um, a lot of things were, like, chaining down like, all the emergency exits, uh, which you're not supposed to do, but, like, we were not going to let anyone get on our plane unless we let them on our plane, essentially. So we would only have the ramp open. We'd leave it, like, basically up until we were bringing people on. Um, but each time we'd get back and debrief at Moose Ops, we would essentially, like, give advice of things we did bad, things we did good, and then just give it to the next crew and then hope that they can learn from that and they would let us know, like, what they did better. Um, it was a lot of learning from each other and, like you said, game time decisions. But we did a couple orphan flights, which I think were some of the most, like, heartbreaking flights for me where you would literally have parents handing their kids over the fence to be like, okay, like, we don't know if our family can get out, but we want our kid to get out of this country to have a better life. And so I remember loading up a bunch of kids and that's so sad to me because they might never see their families again. But um, we had a captain out of McCord who was our AC for one of those flights. And I love this because she brought a projector and a sheet. And so we played like Disney movies uh, with subtitles on them and tried to like make it a little bit more enjoyable for them. So the moment we took off, like we had them still on the floor and like they would watch these shows. And granted, I don't know if it helped at all, but I know how loud C-17s are and how scary that could be for someone who's never been on that, especially when you're not with your family. So anything we could do to be there for them, we did. Um, I would say one of the hardest days was um, the Abbey Gate day when the Marines passed away. Um, that was a big reminder of why we do what we do and why we're going to keep showing up. Um, we were on the ground loading that day, and we were lucky enough to be able to work with all of them. Uh, one in particular, Nicole Gee, um, she would bring a lot of the women and children out to our jet during that week. And one of the most, like, hoorah people I could ever, like, meet. And in all the articles you read about her saying, like, she's a Marine's Marine, like, she loved her job. Um, and she was not scared to be there, which I think that a lot of people were just exhausted and ready to go. And she was like, no, like, I'm going to be here until, like, this is over. Um, so that day, like, we were loading people up. Um, we had heard about a suicide bomber. Um, that had been an intel thing we had heard about the entire time, but it hadn't happened yet. I think we were all on our toes about that. Um, and then we just see this like large thing of smoke and just this commotion. And a lot of the people we were around, like we were hopping on Humvees and any vehicle they had to get over to that gate to figure out what was going on. Um, and we were told immediately, like, y'all need to leave, like get off the ground, like right now, because whatever that is, like, we're going to have to stop all operation right now. Um, we were lucky to get off the ground that day, but 
I remember landing back in Qatar and my phone just like blew up when I turned it back on and my mom and my friends were like, Hey, are you okay? Like what's going on? And cause all they knew was like there had been service members that had died at HKIA. Um, and no matter if it was air force, Marine, army, et cetera, we're all a team. And so no matter who it is, like you don't want it to have any U S service member name on there. And when the names came out that it was her and a couple others, like we were all like, we're going to keep going. Because I think that was, like, the intent of the individuals that did all this was, like, we want to keep them from coming back and taking these people out or whatever the intent was. was, like, you think we're not going to come back? Okay, joke's on you because yep. we don't get scared that easily. Like, this is an even more reminder of why we're going to keep going back and doing what we're told to do. Um, and so we just kept going back. But, like, seeing the Marines there in particular, how they had to keep doing, like, their job, them and the Army guys there, like, they didn't have time to break or have a morning period through any of this. Cause we still had like three, four days left at that point. Um, seeing them rise to the occasion was the most inspirational thing I've ever seen because those were 12 or 13 of those teammates that there wasn't that many of them there that they all knew these individuals and they still protected the jets. They still protected the individuals they could. And then until like literally the last day, like they were doing it the best they could. And so very honored to have been a part of, this whole mission, but also seeing like how they handled it. So I think it was something that we could definitely like admire to be. So. Yeah, that's really inspiring to, to hear that. This is just a crap sandwich from the get go. And we could obviously, and I think we yeah. have on other podcasts, peel back the onion of this was probably not the, the best way to go about doing it, but nonetheless, this is the, the way it went down. How, how long of a flight was it on average between, uh, like Kabul and like with all the holding and stuff like that, like how, what was the average time you're sitting on the plane from takeoff, getting there, coming back? What was the day? Yeah. So a standard trip over there would be like two, two and a half hours to get there. And then we would be on the ground until literally we had every single slot filled in our jet or unless something happened. And so you're on the ground for about three, three and a half, four hours, depending on how long you're waiting um, from there. So let's say that's already eight hours you're coming back another three hours because you're really heavy um, and you're just trying to have the most comfortable flight as you can, but also get there fast. Um, most of the time we were in a holding pattern because there was no ram space. Um, a lot of people who haven't been to Qatar, like literally every single taxiway, every runway except for one essentially was having planes parked on it, which is not standard at all. And so um, that was something where they were constantly trying to get jets processed to take off essentially for us to land. And so a lot of flights were having to call in flight emergencies um, just because we had to land because um, the jets were so hot. Like in the summer, it is already upwards of 120, 130 degrees that our back of our plane cargo bay does not cool down past like 100. And then you have 500 people on your plane, which makes it exponentially hotter that you're having kids, um, elderly people passing out that you have to get on the ground. So we would be in a holding pattern maybe an hour and then get on the ground. And then we couldn't open our ramp until we had security forces around us, which, again, we didn't have that manpower for that. If this is something we're literally figuring out as we went on and as the days went on, they were able to get more people. But the problem is it was only like a 14, 15 day operation and it takes a couple of days to get people there. So you'd have to essentially like make decisions of like, OK, we have to start opening up doors because we have to get airflow throughout here. And at that point, you're sitting on the ground for an additional six to nine hours because you have to have these other jets being processed. And so, and we'd have like 30 hour days easily. And then you'd get off the plane whenever that's done and then sleep eight hours and go again. Um, but it was one of those things where, yes, like crew is super important, but like these days extended because this isn't like a standard mission where you're like, okay, like our crew is time, we have to leave. It's like, no, you have these people on your jet that you have to make sure they're okay they get processed. And then whenever they're good, you're good. And so I think that's what a lot of people struggled with was because we've never had like days like this. Like we've had long days, but normally like you have your duty day period that you have to like abide by where these are okay. Like this is a completely different situation. So, um, very, very long days. The flights were not terribly long, but it was more or less the period of sitting on the ground when you landed and then loading people that were just a lot longer than they normally would be. 
So yeah, the environment is terrible. Then not to mention all the stress and strain and the motions that are that are running running through you. Yeah. The first day you mentioned you think about maybe five hundred people. What was the normal load that you're bringing out, like passenger wise? I assume it's all floor loading again because you're trying to max. So like, to me, I guess the impressive part, and I've mentioned it with AP and some other ones, is like takeoff and landing data. Like it's such yeah such a big deal. So seeing the first C-17s when the field was overrun, taking off, knowing that they're just making it happen which is like against everything in the book, they're being champions. And it's like, they made it happen. Uh, but as we all know, the air force is not always, uh, they don't, they don't look too kindly upon that. So I'm just thinking again, when I first saw the C-17, that was overloaded. I mentioned with AP, I was surprised. I'm glad everyone got distinguished flying crosses and they, they weren't Q3, uh, which is like the normal air force way of doing things. So they did the right thing. But what, what was the normal load coming out of there? Were you still having to kind of, I wouldn't say guesstimate, but like figuring out how much weight you got in the back of the plane? What was some of the, like those like technical processes that you were going through? Yeah. So we can fit upwards of like 586,000 pounds. I need to double check that. It's been a minute, but yeah. <laughs> can hold a lot of people or in a lot of yeah. weight. But the thing is like, I think most of our missions were anywhere between like four to 500 people. Um, and then the embassy individuals in the very beginning, it was probably only like three, 350 at that point because their trips were a little bit more comfortable. But um, as far as like a standard load, it would be like five to 600 people. And that's something you do worry about as a load master is like, okay, like how do I calculate this? Because a lot of times we didn't have like a passenger manifest. It was essentially like, hey, like we're going to keep loading these people until like your jet's full and then you're going to go. And you're like, this is not how as a load master I'm ever comfortable doing it because literally like you're in charge of the back of the plane and yeah. if it is too heavy like and that plane knows tail dives like it is your fault and so you do not want that on you and so i think a lot of it was just trying to find the best cg as possible trying to get as much head count as you could and then knowing that like the bags in the back typically like guesstimating everything which again you don't like doing because you want like actual numbers and so that was definitely something with your team and crew you'd have to talk through like okay how many people are we willing to take and then how many people like do you think this is and so we try to like count throughout it and then do like an estimated weight for it but most of the time like we knew we'd be under that weight limit so we'd be okay it was just more of when we we're bringing cargo we'd want like actual numbers because that's when issues would arise so yeah i guess probably for like men women and children you got a average weight you probably associate with each yeah gender and and youth yeah. But if you're bringing out an MRAP or something like that, then you definitely want the weight for it. Yeah. Those yeah. Are, those are big things. Um, I only bring that up now that I fly big old fat planes, <laughs> like in the F-16, like you didn't, I mean, you would, you would do told, right. But like you're, you're going to be fine or the engine's going to quit and you're not going to be fine. True. You're going to ride the rocket seat, but being able to calculate it, getting the CG, all those things really do matter. My funny story in the triple seven, there was one, like someone does all the like weight and balance for you normally and get sent to you and you have to do like you have to run some calculations in the jet but it's all computerized mm-hmm. but i landed in a place that we didn't have that and i was going to have to do it which we never do and i was like <laughs> if you want to crash a triple seven this is how you do it you have me do the uh weight oh, and balance no. <laughs> in this thing because i have no idea how to do it you just think of like the 747 coming out of bagram yep. like that cctv footage is like horrific to see that so okay. it matters and that's why i've talked about it a good bit for those who are uh listening i've heard it a few times because me it's really impressive that all came down yeah um what were like some of the things did you do anything different you mentioned like all right hey like the emergency doors like tying those up or latching those so they couldn't be open because like in my mind are right, yeah like you said there are people who have never been in an airplane they're scared to death they're hot they're miserable i can very easily seeing like actually pulling an emergency handle or something that should not be pulled or done was there anything you were doing or everyone was doing differently or having to modify or being cognizant about that you wouldn't normally have to worry about? Yeah. So immediately, like we would take the crash axes off the walls. So those weren't up there. Um, we all had, you know, M9s on us. We had Ravens with us. Uh, the first night we didn't have Ravens, which was something we definitely learned very quickly on. Like we need Ravens if we're going to go there. Cause there had been a time restraint. Like if you're on the ground less than this many hours, you don't have Ravens. Um, and for those who don't know what Ravens are, it's 
flying security forces essentially where they guard all the engines and the doors um we chained down all the entrances except for the ramp um just because we had uh, one of the load masters, Alexis Sanchez, her crew, they had someone open the door on taxi, so you had to pull a gun on someone, which is not something anyone should ever want to do, but, like, you got to protect your crew. Um, a lot of this was just not standard because, as you see, like, people trying to jump on the plane on the taxiway, that happened to our crew, that happened to several other crews where people were literally holding on to any type of device outside of the plane, um, which to me is, I can never imagine that. Like that you're that like desperate to leave a country that you're going to hold on to a moving plane. Um, and so there are several instances where we landed where people would find like body parts on the plane. Um, and definitely like so much shout out to the maintenance guys for everything they did. Cause there's a lot of things that they saw that I'm sure is not easy to unsee. Um, but they kept doing their job despite all that. Um, so I think it was constant game plan decisions because you're constantly trying to see like, how can I best protect this plane and protect the people in it? And so I think a lot of people were worried about getting Q3 and stuff like that because we're not supposed to do, like, a lot of this stuff. Um, but it's figuring out, like, how you can most effectively, like, protect everything on this jet and do it in the right way. And so um, very proud of each crew for every decision they made just because, like, a lot of it was very different. And so we learned from each other as far as, you know, um, cargo straps, like, how to do it right. Um we started doing tarps on the floor. Uh, originally, that wasn't something we did, but a lot easier cleanup for the maintenance guys because before, like, I I will never oh. sleep on the floor with C-17 again. Let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's stuff that would probably be, be there forever. But tarps, like, definitely helped, like, clean that up. So all you could do is just rip the tarp off and then, you know, power wash it and then send it again. Um, but we learned as we went. And I feel like that's... Yeah the standard Air Force thing is like, you got to be flexible and just figure it out as you go. Um, but yeah, definitely in different instances like that. So. Yeah. I think the whole thing is the epitome of just making it happen for a lack of a better phrase, but using judgment, exercising sound judgment mm -hmm. in making decisions with the information you have available. And I think that's one thing that our Air Force does well is trying yeah. when, when it comes down to it, the decentralized command or centralized command, decentralized execution there is like a, is a big part of it and enabling flight leads, enabling aircraft commanders to make decisions because that's where the information is. So you want those people making those decisions. Yeah. That's one thing I tell a lot of people is it's easy when you're going through training to just like skim through the CBTs or skim through certain trainings you have to do. Um, but sometimes it's the only time you ever get to do that training. Cause a lot of this is the first time I ever saw it was on deployment. And so uh, like be ready. So you don't have to get ready kind of mentality um because ultimately like we are in the air force and being in the c-17 you're lucky enough you get to travel the world and see some beautiful places and that's amazing but there is this other side of it where it's stuff like this where you're not going to always be 100 percent trained and ready to do it but you'll have the training to be able to do it but it's a lot of game time decisions making the right decision whether you think it's good or not but like just trying to use the training you have and just make that decision with your crew and be like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stick with it. We're going to execute it. And that's, that's it. Um, and if you're struggling with something, like you talk to each other, um, don't ever play. I have a secret. Cause a lot of this in Afghanistan was like, if you saw something that you didn't think was right, like you have to immediately tell your crew and you'd like decide together. Cause if you didn't talk about it, something else could have definitely negatively occurred. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not to make light of it, but I mean, I never skim through my CBTs. I'm full oh, okay. up on cyber okay. awareness. Training. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Questions about, yeah, hackers, et cetera. That's, that's my wheelhouse. There you go. Um, so kind of encompassing that month. And then I want to, I want to pivot here, but your overall thoughts, like, is it uh, emotional time? You move past it. What, like, what are some of the thoughts that run through your mind when, you know, you hear August 21st, 2021 and Kabul, what, what do you think? It was probably one of the hardest months I've had to do thus far. Um, there are so many people that were a part of this. I think every single C-17 loadmaster or pilot was out there at some point. Um, very honored to be a part of this community, whether they're honored in a way or not, like they deserve to be recognized just because a lot of people have made a lot of hard decisions and that's something that they're gonna have to like, you know, deal with and focus with. But um, it was not the best thing ever operation wise but that's something that if you're going to wait for like the perfect operation that's never going to happen so you make the best with what you have um 
I think the fact that we lost 13 is the hardest part of all of this um, was we were so close to the end and that happened and that shouldn't have happened. So it's a big reminder to us of why we do what we do and to keep doing it for them and for those who can't continue to do this. Um, I hope we never have to lose people like that, but that's part of the military and it sucks. Um, but you keep rising for the occasion for them. So this month is hard, but it's a reminder that we can do hard things. And if you think you can't, you can. So it's just shifting that mentality of like, okay, like we can do anything as a team if we actually like come together and do it because you know, my crew, like we didn't even know each other going into it. I think every crew can attest to that. Um, but we all like come together with your team and you get it done. So, um, trust each other and rely on each other because they're always going to have your back. So I like it. Yeah. One last C-17 question. Cause I should ask in the beginning, you mentioned yeah. you were se- senior airman at the time. Yep. How far out of MQT or the schoolhouse were you like, how long you'd been in the, the squadron before you deployed? Yeah. So I got to Charleston, uh, June 3rd of 2020. So it was about a okay. year and two months. All right. So not quite ripping the bandaid off, but that was, not quite. <laughs> pretty, yeah, but pretty full up for, uh, just being there for a year. All right. I want to, I want to pivot a little bit cause, um, it, I think it's a pretty cool part of the story here. You're now waiting to go to pilot training. You're right. at NJEP. So you're NATO joint jet pilot training out in beautiful, beautiful, which falls. falls. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, it's, it's hot. Like the mosquitoes are the size of hummingbirds there. Um, but what, what was the process? Like, did you know you wanted to be a pilot or is that something that, Hey, after you got in the air force, you wanted to do it. Talk me through like when you said, Hey, I want to go do that. And then what was the process like to get to where you're sitting today? Yeah, absolutely. So I have kind of a different story than some might, but I hope that it can be an attest that you can do. You can do a lot of things. Um, but I actually graduated high school in 2013, um, was accepted into the Air Force Academy. I'm uh, very honored, very excited to do that. Um, life happened, to put it short. Um, I was in Boston in 2013 when the bombing happened as a pacer, and one of the people I was running with, unfortunately, passed away that day. Um, and then two months later, I, when my close family members committed suicide. So I went into basic at the Academy, not in the best headspace, to be quite honest with you. Um, very close to my family and made a decision to leave. And that's something I had to live with. I finished basic, started the school year and like, um, a dream that I wanted to do my whole life essentially just like ended. Um, so from there I went to college. Um, I went to Fermi university and Adam state university. Um, the desire to serve never went away. Uh, it's something I wanted to do my entire life. It took me like six years to graduate college from transferring schools, but I finally did. And then um, applied OTS, didn't get accepted. I have a graphic design degree for those who are wondering. Not the most competitive Air Force degree. <laughs> so I did international affairs, um, so I'm not like right. very competitive either. But yeah, here I am. Right. Here we are. Um, decided to enlist in the Air Force. A lot of people are like, why would you do that? You have a degree. Um, best decision of my entire life. I will stand by that forever. Um, I've always wanted to be a pilot, but for me, I wanted to serve. I didn't care what it was. I'm very thankful that I got to be a loadmaster because aviation has my heart um, and I love that mission. But I went in enlisted knowing that I wanted to commission, but I wasn't going to get that in the way of my job. Um, and if I didn't commission, I was going to at least try a billion times. And if I didn't get it, hopefully, you know, do 20 years. But um, I essentially graduated from tech school, went to Charleston. You have a meeting with your commander. Um, typically, I think at most bases when you start, when you get to your squadron, and he asked me like, "Hey, like, what are some goals that you have?" And you know, obviously, was I want to be the best load that I can be for the squadron, but also like I would love to commission one day as well. Um, I don't want that to get in the way of this job, though. And so um, from there, like, I had some really, really awesome senior NCOs that were like, "Hey, if you want a commission, like, we're gonna." tell you X, Y, and Z of stuff you should do, but, like, obviously you have to do it at this point. Like, we can tell you all day, but if you don't do it, it doesn't matter. Um, So one thing I'll tell a lot of enlisted members, airmen especially, is if you want a commission, it's going to take a lot of work, um, but it is not impossible. Um, The biggest thing is, like, putting yourself in positions to where, like, you can show leadership, but also, like, if you enjoy something, like, 
share that with others. So like one thing that um, I, faith is really important to me. So I did a lot of stuff like at the chapel uh, with airmen, like they have something called the junior enlisted council that you can be a part of while you live in the dorms. There's dorm council. There's so many things that you can do. Um, but it's just putting yourself like in extra things outside of work. Like you don't want to just do it just to do it. But like if there's things that you're passionate about, like obviously that's going to show if you do it. Um, but I applied to a program called Slick O. It's Senior Leader Enlisted Commissioning Program. Um, Slick O is essentially as you have your degree, they'll send you to OTS and you'll commission from that point. Slick A is if you only have your associates, they'll send you to ROTC for two years and you'll commission that way. So it's a difficult program to get into, but it is not impossible. Um, there's so many commissioning sources out there. I feel like people just don't know about. So it's important to do your research and talk to people about that. But I was in Air Mobility Command. So essentially, like you go through your squadron, your group, your wing, your numbered Air Force, and then your MAGCOM. So from there, they pick uh, one person from your MAGCOM for SLEC O and one person for SLEC A. And then from there, you go to OTS. So that's the program that I went through. Um, I was really lucky to, you know, have some great commanders and leadership to help me out. But like, uh, it's not impossible. Just find the program that you're interested in and go for it. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Some things are just better together. Like party playlists and Friday nights. Campfires and ghost stories. Peanut butter and chocolate. And Reese's Cups are the perfect combination of creamy peanut butter and delicious milk chocolate. So, when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Buy Reese's today wherever candy is sold. So, Well, obviously a great attitude, great drive. I think a lot of really good advice there of finding something you're passionate in because being well-rounded. And But the piece I think is really important was saying, hey, you want to do this, but you want to be the best loadmaster first, which I think is important advice. No matter where you want to go, whatever your job is, be the best at that job first and foremost. The rest will come, but having those goals is important. Exactly. I was going to ask you what was the uh, selection rate there, but I mean, air mobility, I don't know what well, that's probably like um, 80,000. I don't know how many airmen are in air mobility command, but that's a lot of airmen in air mobility command to have two people selected. Do you know like how many people applied? Probably don't know that number. I mean, it's, I'm just thinking of the bases that like you have Charleston, uh, Lewis yeah, McCord, uh, Wright Pat. Dover, and McGuire, and Travis. Yeah, Dover, McGuire, yeah, uh, Travis. A lot of bases, so that's really awesome. Um, I think a true testament, obviously, of your character and your ability there, so that's pretty cool. I think so that congrats I, on that. Thank you. It's it's a great program, but the thing is with OTS is that uh, I was a senior airman and I got picked up. And I think a lot of times that people are like, oh, you can't get picked up as an airman, you can't get picked up as staff, you have to be more of like a higher NCO. And I think that it is amazing having like more leadership and more airmen under you, like the higher you get, because then when you get OTS, like you've led more people, um, but it is not impossible to do it at a younger rate. I think my biggest thing was no matter what rank I was, I want to serve in the best capacity that I can. Like, I'm not going to change based off of like my rank. Like, obviously like you're going to be more mature and like the people that you have, but, like you can make a difference wherever you are. Um, I will tell a lot of people too, where my degree wasn't very competitive. And so like make them tell, you no. um, the biggest feedback I had was, hey, your degree isn't good enough. And so, um, you know, we're lucky enough to have great TA through the Air Force. Like, I went and got my master's um, in aeronautics. I think that really helped. Um, but for those who don't have their degree yet, like, do your research on what the Air Force needs and get that because then you won't waste as much time as I did. But, like, there's definitely <laughs> ways to do it. Um, if they tell you that you're deficient in an area, well, go be efficient in that area. Um, don't let that discourage you. Like, let that fuel you to – just drive you more and go do those things so you can show back up. They see your name again and they're like, okay, this person really wants it. So if you don't get in the first or second time, even the third time, I have friends who've gotten accepted like their fifth or sixth try. Um, so don't give up. Just keep applying yourself. Keep being the best like airman you can be and then or NCO. And then you're going to get there eventually. It just takes time depending on the program. So. Yeah, so I've, I've heard a theme with you. It sounds like there's a lot of dedication, not giving up and pushing through. <laughs> You willing to talk about the bombing a little bit? I, I didn't know that aspect. And the reason I, I want to talk about it or the thread I want to pull on there is I know you're, you're off literally to the races here next week. So uh, passionate uh, runner. And are you doing a triathlon? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, I'm doing an Ironman in Finland. Iron, okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. No well, half there. Ironman. Um, not like a full okay, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, half. So oh, that yeah. doesn't really count. It doesn't really yeah, count. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, but so here's the thread I want to pull on. Like you're a pacer during the Boston Marathon. I did not know this till you mentioned it. Um, but obviously you're running with someone, they get killed. That's a really traumatic event as an understatement of, uh, of the day to say the least. Yeah. But it didn't deter you from like, I guess still pursuing this. Like I can see that being, uh, uh, an event that could lead someone to just saying, this is not for me or I can't do it. Did you ever have any like thoughts of like quitting or, Hey, I can't do this. Was it tough to get back out there? What talk to me about that. Are you referring more to deployment side of it? Not even the deployment side of it. I mean, that, that could be an aspect of it, but I mean, even I would think going through such a traumatic event that now the next time you go run or you go to a large, like if you go run in a marathon or, or Ironman or whatever it might be, like obviously you, you experience that. Yeah. So being able to get out and go do it again without fear or pushing through that, that takes perseverance in my mind. Yeah. Is that, a, is that something that crosses your mind or you just. It is. So um, one thing that was kind of crazy was I qualified for the Boston marathon last year. So I did it this past April, which was the 10 year anniversary of the bombing, um, okay. which I didn't even realize until I got there. I was like, Oh, well, that's been 10 years already. Um, but they had a memorial with like the lights on it where the individuals who had died passed away. Um, I will say there was a minute there, like after 2013, where I Academy and life like did not go well for about seven years. Um, a lot of it just crashed and burned in different areas. Um, but my biggest thing was you can let events like that completely destroy you. And I think I did let it kind of affect me for a really long time because I was only 17. Um, but there comes a point where you have to make a decision of like, am I going to let this just destroy me the rest of my life? Or like, am I going to let this fuel me to be something better? Um, because looking back on it, it's a big reason why I continued to want to be in the military is that people want to keep you from doing things that you love or live in fear. And I refuse to live that way. So I think I did live like that for a little bit. Um, big reason why like on deployment when that happened again, where it is absolutely terrifying because you never know when stuff like that can happen. But it is in that moment of like, okay, like be there for the people you're with and like relentlessly support them through this stuff because it's hard. Like no one should ever have to go through any of this. Um, but that's a big part of like just being like a good friend, a good teammate to people. Um, I really struggled for a while after Boston. Um, I struggled with leaving the academy. A lot of that led into that. But um, there got a point in my life where I'm like, okay, I can't live like this anymore. Like, I want to do something and I want to try to, like, help people with that because people go through hard stuff all the time. And if you don't go through hard stuff, you're just lying because everyone does. And so it's important to be, like, vulnerable, but also be important to be like, okay, like, hey, we can do hard things. We can get through hard things and use that to, like, make you better in the long run. Um, it's just hard to have that mentality in the moment. Cause you're like, I don't want to hear that. That sucks. Cause I want to like <laughs> wallow in this, but, um, yeah. it would be hard to say life will never have its like tribulations, but it's learning how to deal with that and then move forward in like a healthy way. So, okay. Tough question. So how do you deal with that? Was there something that you mentioned faith earlier? Was it something that just over time you just made this decision? Like, Hey, I'm going to press, I'm going to get over it and I'm going to, you know, live life and be, and be positive to paraphrasing there. Yeah. Or was there like a, a catalyst where you said like, there's an aha moment that something made you pivot that mindset? Yeah. Um, one thing I'll say faith always has been super important to me. Uh, it's gotten me through some hard stuff. Um, just cause it is a reminder that you're not going through it alone. Um, but I will say I haven't always had like a positive mindset. Um, I was very negative for a long time of like everything bad is happening, like life is terrible, like I just don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Um, but I think it's finding like what your why is, is so important. I know people say it all the time and it can be kind of cliche, but it's like, I think it is very important because when things are hard, it's a reminder of like, okay, why you get out of bed in the morning and why you do what you do. Um, whether it was losing that friend in Boston and losing my family member due to like, you know, mental health stuff. Um, and even with you know, Kabul back in 2021, it's, it's a reminder to keep going because there's a lot of people that can't do that anymore. Um, but we have the ability to wake up every day. We get to go to work. We get to complain about things. Like we get to go for a run. Um, I think my big stress reliever is running. Um, I love going for a run or going to the gym because it's a good way just to clear my head. Um, but I think everyone has a different way of dealing with stress. Um, 
And so I think finding healthy ways to cope with that is the best thing. Um, but just trying to like remember why you're like why you're doing it is such a huge thing because if you don't have a concrete why, it doesn't really pull you out of hard stuff. So. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Down, that was a little pivot I didn't anticipate going down, but I appreciate you being open about that. Absolutely. I want to jump back to where you're now. Did you know when you got picked up for OTS that you're going to be a pilot or go to pilot training? No. And- so <laughs> I actually made a mistake, which my leadership laughs at me about this. But when I found out that I got picked up, um, I was on a Zoom call with uh, General Minahan with my leadership. And he was like, congratulations, Like you're going to go to OTS. Sorry, you can't be a load master anymore. And typically they don't tell you your job right there. Like they send you it later. And I was like, oh, sir, like what's my job going to be? And my leadership just like looked at me and were like, why would you ask that? <laughs> why not? It's my why life. Why not? It's my life. But a couple of days later, I got back from our local and I checked my email and they're like, congratulations, you're tentatively going to pilot training. And I like freaked out and like ran into our scheduling office. And I was like, guys, guess what? And I'm sure they were not as excited as I was, but I was like, on top of the world. Um, but I left for OTS in April and so I was supposed to go to Laughlin Air Force Base for pilot training and, mm. um, you know, super excited about Del Rio, you know, but yeah. Laughlin by the sea, <laughs> Laughlin yeah. by the sea, but about halfway through OTS, they asked like any rated pilots that were interested in applying to NJEP, you could go in front of a board and submit like a package that way. And I honestly didn't even think that was a possibility just because I knew it was a lot of USAFA cadets or ROTSI guys that would go. So I didn't know it was a OTS possibility. So I submitted a package for that. I went in front of a board and um, was very, very lucky um, and honored that I got to get picked up with another OTS guy. And so it was kind of a game time change because I was had all my stuff going to Laughlin and then we just swapped it to go to Shepherd. But I'm very, very honored to get to be in training with NATO instructors and NATO students um, and a definitely a very cool curriculum to be a part of. So I start in November, so it's kind of coming up already, but definitely um, very thankful to be here. So It's a good time to be having dollar rides. It's like November and December. And, uh, be a lot cooler. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, gosh, I just like have flashbacks to sit in the back seat just waiting for someone to go through a checklist yeah. uh, in July. Um, what do you want to fly? That's the million dollar question. Million dollar here. question. Um, now that I have a choice, so if I did, my dream plan to be an F-16 or an A-10. Okay. Yep. They win. Okay. Well, you do get a choice, but then like the Air Force gets a choice. <laughs> the Air Force gets so, a choice too. Yeah. Um, you get a vote. It's just a small vote, but hopefully, um, you know, an F-16. I don't know about the A-10. You know, yeah. Just, they're going to be around for a little bit longer. You know, we're yeah. here's crossed. I just want to shoot... I want to shoot the gun once. Same. My life will be made. If I can just shoot it one time, like, okay, we're good. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your story. Um, Again, it's incredible to hear just what all the men and women did, you know, especially the month of August. And that's where I'm really focusing on here. Because, again, I think uh, we all saw the chaos that was going on, and I can't imagine what that was like on the ground. So thanks for sharing your story. Best of luck in the future. I know you're going to hang around for a There I Was story and look forward to you flying the Viper one day. See you.